You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Talking Chop Podcast. As always, I am Carlos Colazzo here with episode 14 of the podcast. Brad is not here today. He is out traveling in California, uh, getting things done on his end. But we have some very exciting guests today, much more knowledgeable than Brad in uh, the realm of sports, baseball, and pretty much anything else you can think of. We've got (laughs) Eric Cole. How are you doing? Hey, buddy. How are you? Uh, good, and we also have Ivan the Great. Ivan, what's going on? Not much. I'm excited. Let's yeah, do it. I'm very excited for this podcast. Uh, we've got a lot of interesting stuff to talk about today, but the biggest news, obviously, since the last time that we uh, reached your ears was that Freddy Gonzalez was fired as the manager of the team. Um, in his place in the interim, Brian Snitker is the current manager uh, after managing AAA. Gwinnett, uh, real quick, guys, just what do you think about this move? Did it surprise you at all? Do you think that it was unwarranted? Do you think it was just a matter of time before this happened? Eric, do you want to start us off, and then we can move to your thoughts, Ivan? Yeah, I mean, I think it was warranted maybe before, like in the off season, instead of extending the guy. I'm not sure if I really understand what value there is in letting the guy play out, you know, 35, 40 games, and then letting him go. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fan base has had there was no hope of ever recovering that. I mean, he would have had to like go on a forty game winning streak for any fan to really think much of him. And I mean, you saw that in our comments, you saw it on Twitter, you saw it everywhere. Anytime anything anytime anything happened, it was Freddie's fault. And when it gets that toxic of an atmosphere in terms of like the fan base, maybe the front office just feels like they have to make a change. Uh, I don't know if there was any dynamics between the front office and Freddie that had changed. To where you know they were ultimately kind of forced to let him go, but I, overall, I don't think that much of Freddie. I don't think he's the biggest, you know, the biggest reason they've been struggling. But at the same time, if this means that there's someone who does a better job and ultimately gains some advantage there, you know, with the actual person in charge, mm-hmm. then I'm I'm in favor of it. But I just I don't think he was the biggest problem. All right, Ivan. Yeah. Um. I think my thoughts on it are basically like 100% right move, but wrong reasons, or at least, you know, like if they, if they were going for a specific event or series of events as a reason for letting them go, there were so many better ones than, Hey, this team is really bad and we're really sad about the record. So you got to go. It just, you know, there were, there were a lot of better times where I think it would have made sense as a, like bad decisions will not be tolerated failure will not be tolerated you know the end of 2014 seems to just kind of make sense but so because if you're changing the direction of a franchise around at that point i don't really know why you preserve a manager in the first place Mm -hmm. but and so this just seemed like really strange timing but i'm also not going to complain because 
he seems sort of immortal in that position. <laughs> so I'll take I'll <laughs> take pretty much any you know any point where he's let go so somebody else can replace him because if that opportunity wasn't seized now, who knows how long he might have stuck around. Yeah, I'm kind of I kind of agree with you in that in in the sense that just this seems kind of like a random time to do it and we see this a lot in baseball where managers kind of get cut when a team is playing really poorly whether or not that's their fault or just because it's a bad team in general just because the team is so bad and I feel like that's the case here with the Braves. But um the sense I get with Freddie is that a lot of people have wanted him gone for a while now more many years before this year. You uh talked about the end of 2014 the Braves collapsing in the playoffs. I mean, that that feels like the biggest moment to me, and I think it does make a lot of sense what you said about letting Freddie go then when you're trying to shift directions where the franchise is headed. But um, just looking forward ahead to uh, other managing options, do you guys have any, any people in mind that you would like to see take the helm um, next season when presumably the Braves would hire a, a full-time manager and an interim manager? And do you think Snicker uh, will have the chance to, to have that role going forward? Ivan? Uh. So the Snicker thing is interesting in that we just finished the series against the Phillies and Pete McKinnon was the guy that stepped in after Ryan Sandberg resigned and he basically got the interim like tag ripped off of his nameplate. Mm-hmm. You know, and I didn't I didn't think last year the Phillies really did anything particularly different or better under him. I mean, I think their record might have been better under McKinnon than under Sandberg, but it wasn't some kind of night and day improvement. So you know, I think that Snicker has a very real possibility to hold on to it mm-hmm. if the team kind of just regresses to what they were expected to do, which wouldn't even be an improvement. It would just be them playing like they were supposed to instead of like the worst team ever. But uh, in terms of what I'd like to see, I you know, I've said this repeatedly and this has 5%, probably 2% chance of happening, mm-hmm. even less, is I would like them to hire somebody who is not really from baseball. Yeah, like somebody who likes baseball and, you know, has experience in leadership and analysis, but not somebody whose main criteria are he's been around baseball forever. Yeah, I can go ahead and tell you that that's not going to happen. But I I, I think that's a very interesting uh, discussion to have. So let's let's keep going. Yeah, it just, you know, because there's two things that people talk about. One is making the right in-game decision and, you know, pre-game lineup decision. And one is managing a clubhouse, managing personalities. Neither of those are very specific to baseball. Mm-hmm. You, you know, there's tons of people who do all sorts of like corporate leadership stuff. And I'm about as skeptical as a person as you'll find about like the value of teaching those sorts of things and like getting an MBA or anything of that sort. But, you know, there's got to be somebody out there who can both, make smart decisions and manage personalities, even personalities that get paid orders of magnitude more than he does or she does. Mm -hmm. So it's just, to me, it's kind of like nobody has tried this and there's everybody pretty much admits that managers don't make very good analytic decisions. So, you know, if the Braves really want, they're already kind of trying something sort of new with a very tear down quick rebuild. So why not go a little bit further and you know do have not a baseball guy in the dugout? Yeah, I think the it's it's interesting to think of the Braves in this regard because the GM John Coppola obviously has a a detailed background in analytics, but he was also uh, I guess he turned into a baseball guy. He was never really within baseball. He kind of jumped into it and, and made a name for himself with organizations. Uh, I don't know if you guys got a chance to listen to John Coppola on the Jonah Carey podcast. 
but that was really interesting just to listen to to him how he kind of got into the game and how he used analytics and how he continues to do that but I feel like if there is a GM John Caldwell would be a guy who would be at least open to having more of an analytical figure running the day-to-day stuff I'm just still skeptical that that's going to happen given uh John Hart and John Cheerholz and Bobby Cox and just the guys who are kind of pulling the strings there but Eric do you have any preferences any names that have been thrown out for a managerial position or any of the uh, coaches who are currently on the team that you would like to see take the helm I mean, I'm fine with them giving Snitker a chance. Um, he seems the the thing with Snitker is he's like a 40 year like organizational guy, and I think that he'll do just about anything the organization tells him to do as long as they let him keep that job. And if that means that maybe there's a stronger analytical presence above him to where that can help guide his decision making, that'd be really interesting. Because uh, I'm kind of with Ivan, I think it would be really interesting to see kind of a real analytical approach to managing that doesn't necessarily get tired to, you know, a guy who's been in baseball forever, let's make him the manager. Mm-hmm. But I also think that a communication between the front office and a manager who, where both sides are open to each other, that can happen. Um, but I don't know if Snitger is really going to be the kind of the right guy for that, but I think they're going to give him a chance. And, you know, he's, so far he's everyone seems to be really happy for him. He's been really good about, you know, the coaches seem to be happy that he got the position as opposed to them being passed over for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mean like when when Snicker got his first win, like you know the, the first two guys to really be giving him pats on the back, or you know Terry Pendleton and Eddie Perez, who were both guys who would probably be in line for that spot. Um, I do think that if he doesn't get the position this next year, that Roger McDowell is probably gone. Really? Why is that? I think well, the reason why he got the two year ex- the the two year contract to be the pitching coach. Uh, this was a few years ago was because the Phillies were going to offer him their management position. Mm-hmm. And he's really highly thought of as a pitching coach. Yes. Um, and there's going to be teams with some, there's plenty of teams with some young players, uh, who, especially young pitching, who they want to get better and really good guidance with a pitching mind um, and have some pretty volatile uh, managers at the helm. I'm looking at you, Cincinnati Reds. <laughs> um, and... I just don't. I just think that he's going to ultimately figure out that the Atlanta is not going to be a place where he's going to have an opportunity to move up. Um, I don't think that some of the pitchers necessarily take to his uh, his teaching style very well. I know that they've had that he and Julio Tehran have had problems before. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just becomes a question as to what is he just going to be a pitching coach forever, or does he actually have ambitions to be, man, be a manager? And I think he does, which is why he kind of you know played tough on you know well I can take this management position or you can guarantee me a two year contract. Yeah, I think so, that'll, that'll be interesting. That's something that we don't really talk about too much uh, with the manager talk is just how the how the other coaching staff, how that shakes up. Obviously, we had Carlos Tosca uh, let go when Freddy Gonzalez was fired as well. Not talked about as much, but um, would maybe a more analytical position in, in a bench coach, would that be something you guys would be in favor of as well? Because I think the most realistic way to get more analytics into the dugout and into kind of a game game-to-game decision-making role is with that bench coach and having more of a traditional manager in charge, but leaning on a bench coach as like an analytical guy. Do you think that would be something that teams would use going forward? And do you think the Braves would benefit by something like that? Or would you rather have the manager be your analytical dude? Uh, Ivan, well, I guess you can take yeah, that. Well, I think, you know, I'd be okay with that in theory, but it's like, as we've heard, you know, apparently they have an analytics guy in the dugout or did when Freddie Gonzalez was still there. Mm-hmm. And all the report, all the reports that we kind of heard from that were, you know, he, this guy, whoever he is, 
tells Freddie whatever, you know, whatever he thinks, but it's still up to Freddie to incorporate it when making a decision. And to me, that's almost like saying, you know, it's like Clippy from Microsoft Office jumping in and going, <laughs> hey, you know, your run expectancy would increase by 0.02 if you if you didn't bunt here. And yet, you know, if he's not listening to that, totally pointless. Mm -hmm. So it would be it would be great if there was a bench coach who was really kind of taking the charge of analytics and feeding it and the decision making was cognizant of that. It is completely status quo and no more effective if the bench coach is very knowledgeable in these things and nothing comes out of it and it's not changing decision making in any way. So to me, it's, you know, if you can make that work, great. And that's an improvement. But so far, to the extent that bench coaches or analytics guys in the dugout are relegated to pretty much just offering advice and can't force any decisions mm -hmm. and there's not that kind of like hey this is a really good idea i'm actually going to try that going on there i just don't see a point yeah that's that's true that's a good point as well um is there anything else we need to mention uh, about freddie before we move off that topic i know we've written about it extensively on the site so if you guys haven't checked that out you can go to talkingchop.com i it yeah, feels pretty it feels pretty bad to find out that you're being fired from an email saying that your flight itinerary has been changed <laughs> Um, and I, I know that's not the, really the Braves fault. Like they, they kind of make the change. They're kind of preemptively trying to diffuse the situation and be ready. And ultimately like an auto email or, you know, ends up making them look like they're like incompetent and don't know what's going on. But at the same time, the, when that, when all that broke I'm like, this just seems clumsier and clumsier in terms of the timing and things like that. As well, they're really prepared to make this move, you know, and things like that. I just, yeah. It, it, actually, felt, it felt clumsy. I actually wasn't even aware of that until you just said that because the entire last week I was like completely checked out and without Wi-Fi. So I only found out about this firing because of you guys going crazy in the Slack group talking about what you were doing. But that's insane. So how, so how does that happen? <laughs> that does well, suck. The, well, yeah, I mean, like, I, I, my understanding is that, you know, the night before he was fired, Freddie got an email from, like, Delta with his flight itinerary for the next day. <laughs> Which is a little awkward since the yeah. series wasn't over yet. Oh, damn. Well, at least they I got him a flight, right? I mean, glass half full kind of guy. I would be so confused. Like, I wouldn't realize that that would meant that I got fired. And I would show up to the clubhouse and be like, hey, guys, what's going on? <laughs> you ready to play some baseball? And, you know, everybody would just look at me really sadly. It would be the most <laughs> awkward thing. It's just, you know, hopefully they got that, that wasn't the only way they communicated that to him because... If it were me, that would have been like a sitcom moment. Yeah, yeah. see, like I think that they, he found out the night before and didn't have a conversation with anybody yeah. until the next morning, but he knew. Oh, and that, that is that, brutal. So you just you probably didn't sleep much that night. Well, probably not. No. <laughs> yeah, I know. I well, talked to Freddie several times, and he's a, a super nice guy. Uh, regardless of what I think he does, decision making, what he what he does in game, uh, super nice guy. I hope the best for him going forward. I have no idea what kind of a, a career path this is going to lead to do you guys think he's going to get a job somewhere else yes. i don't think i don't think a manager role is, is something that i would expect going into another team but uh, a job on a coaching staff somewhere do you think that would be uh, too crazy to see i mean i would be shocked if he didn't get a job and like as a bench coach or a first or third base coach i mean he's i mean like he's kind of as average if i mean slightly below average as it gets in terms of like just overall managing mm -hmm. But, I mean, he has a lot of friends in the industry. He has a lot of respect in the industry. Whether or not that's, you know, 
he's entitled to that is completely different. But I think I don't, I don't think I think he'll be unemployed as long as he wants to be. Okay, fair point. All right. Yeah, I think yeah, I oh, think bench ahead. coach with um, you know, as soon as another manager gets fired on that staff, like he'll he'll grab a he'll grab a bench coach or a base coach position somewhere of a tenuous managerial situation just so he can step in when that manager gets axed too. <laughs> and, and it won't be with the Marlins. I know I can tell you that. Oh, I can, tell I you can that 100%. guarantee it will not be anything with the Marlins. All right. So um, we've been getting a lot of questions about the draft as that is uh coming up sooner than uh maybe not as soon as you would like eric but it's it's gonna it's around the corner i'm so Um, tired we've we talked to you about the draft uh a bit two weeks ago but i just kind of wanted to touch base with you again and ask if uh if anything that you know has changed as far as um players the braves are targeting uh obviously this is the point where we start to get more and more mock drafts we start to kind of have an idea of the players, or at least the type of players that teams are kind of targeting in on. Um, do we have any more clarity with, with what the Braves are doing as we're about three weeks out now, or is it still kind of up in the air? Uh, short answer, no. Um, awesome. The, the, it, the, the top of the draft, I have not seen it in flux like this. In terms of like the pundits and the prognosticators, overall... Is to who's even going to go first? Mm-hmm. The, it's pretty clear that everyone thinks that the most talented player in the draft is Jason Group, who's a prep high school pitcher. You know, lefty has the body you want. It's pretty polished, even for a prep pitcher. Projectable, uh, but he has some you know immaturity and some off the field, like kind of people aren't sure if he's really he really gets it what it takes to be a pro. Mm-hmm. Had a weird transfer thing. Uh, that happened where he ended up being ineligible for four games because of basically he didn't notify the right person at the right time yeah. that he was coming back to his old high school. It was it's a silly thing, but ultimately there's uh, there's some uncertainty about him, and there's just generally uncertainty about taking a prep pitcher anyway. Yeah, real so, quick before you move on from Groom, does does that uh, immature the immaturity questions? Does that worry you considering this is a six seventeen year old kid in high school? I mean. Aren't all 17-year-old kids a bit immature? I know I was when I was 17 years old. Well, the idea is that any team should be worried mm-hmm. about immaturity resulting in problems down the road. Uh, I mean, the most severe cases of that would be something like a Johnny Manziel, where you're giving, you gave a guy millions of dollars and he can't, he doesn't put up results and all he cares about is spending the money that you gave him. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, you're giving these kids millions of dollars and you're giving them to a kid and you're, you're doing your best to project who they are going to be, as, both as a player as well as a person. Um, and that's really tough. Um, Scott, I know, posted an article today where he kind of went through three of the mock drafts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, predictably, there's three different people that they pick. Um, and Garav has been working on, and we're going to get this up sometime later this week, where he's basically gone through every mock draft that's happened so far. And, like, there's a range of five or six guys that it could be with, like, these these outside chances of, like, another five guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, could, it could go pretty much anywhere. Um I have a feeling that it's gonna the top three players taken are going to be Jason Groom, AJ Puck, and Kyle Lewis. Yep. I don't know what order those will be, and it's just as likely that like a Riley Pint or a Nick Senzel sneaks in there, especially if a, like a team falls in love with them. Uh, but we're even getting conflicting reports as to like who the Braves prefer between Groom and Pint. Yeah, I know Keith Law says um, uh, Pint and or was it the other way around? It's the other way around. Okay, so Keith Law says Groom. 
And um, what was the other one? Uh, K- Jim Callis. Jim Callis of MLB.com says Pint. So, yeah, I think in general Pint scares me a little bit more just because we've heard a lot about his control issues. And then you've got Tyler Kolek who seems like, I mean, I'm not throwing out comparisons here, but that's a similar arm from last year's draft, and he's already had Tommy John surgery, and I haven't heard too much of him since. But uh, is there, like, a group of players you'd prefer the Braves to see uh, take at the number three spot? I would be fine with Groom or Pint, just because those are really high upside guys. I mean, mm-hmm. it's easy to say, like, we're worried about Pint, but this is a kid who throws 100 miles an hour with a plus curve and a plus changeup. I mean, I'm not sure what else you really want from a kid. Uh, ultimately, you're going to be taking a risk with a pitcher anyway. Yeah. Um, uh, Groom is really polished. His stuff might not be as high end as might not have as high a ceiling as Pints, but it's not that far below it. And he's you know, and all he does is just basically dominate every level. And he's a lefty. Those are all good things. Uh, I personally would prefer like a Kyle Lewis or even maybe a, like a Corey Ray, mm-hmm. one of those college bats, just because there's no outfield bats in the system other than a Ronald Acuna, who's 18 years old. You know, and 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 also has a, an injury, which is going to have him keep him out for a while. Mm-hmm. A really significant power bat in the system, especially in the outfield, just not there. And I think that if the Braves get the chance to draft Kyle Lewis, then they will draft him. Uh, I just don't know if Kyle Lewis is going to get to him. Okay, Ivan, just to uh, to keep you in the loop here, I don't know how much you you like to concentrate on the draft this early, uh, but do you have any thoughts on on what the Braves uh, should do, or do you have any players in mind that you like, or anything that? That maybe worries you, but I guess just what are your thoughts on the upcoming draft? What do you want to see the Braves do? Um, I think, yeah, I think just the one thing is to what Eric just said. I generally just defer to like Eric and Garrett and all you guys because yeah, to me these are just these are just names, and I'm like I don't know this guy because I'm pretty steadfast about pretty much just watching the major league team yeah. and nothing else. Like I can't really. I know it. This is like really gauche as a Bra- as a Braves fan now, but like I just can't bring myself to watch minor league games. Like I, I just should we kick I, him I, off the podcast now, Eric? Considering that's the most exciting yeah. part about it. Well, to be fair, if we kick Ivan off the podcast, then he'd stop answering my messages about statistical questions. So he's, he he is no. watch whatever he chooses to. Yeah, it's I. But so take this completely with like the grain of salt. Of I have no knowledge about this, but my sense is from what I've heard is that none of the bats are like you know, Bryce Harper, like, beat you over the head level bats, mm. either with their hair or with their athletic ability. <laughs> so, to me, it just seems like, you know, if there's a talent differential overall and a value differential in that some of the arms are much better than some of the bats in terms of how much they could contribute to a team, not necessarily the 2018 Braves, I would prefer that they go there instead of getting someone to help them a few years down the line, just because, you know, a lot of times with these, with a lot of these draft picks, you're talking like a good scenario is like a two-win league average player. Yeah. So you know how much, like how great is it to spend your top three pick on somebody that ends up that way? Now you know on average that might be pretty good because those guys don't really grow on trees as the 2014, 2015, 2016 Braves are finding out. But on the <laughs> other hand, maybe kind of a waste of a pick in that sense. Like I just wouldn't be that excited if. They got this opportunity for a high pick, and you know, they if they had just gone with somebody that wasn't trying to fill a hole on a roster, they ended up with a better player. Yeah. Okay, fair enough, too. And I think this is kind of an interesting point or an interesting uh, time to bring up an article that you have prepared for the site. Uh, if you guys, well, obviously you guys don't know, I think me and, me and Eric might be one of the only 
uh, people on the site to have even read this piece that Ivan has prepped to go at some point this week. Um, I'm assuming that's going to be out by the time you guys are listening to this podcast. But basically, Ivan, you you did a little study on um, seeing where pitchers, where good pitchers come from. Uh, and what did you find out? I know that you talked a little bit about the the first few rounds of the draft, and obviously that's what we're talking about right here. But can you talk a little bit about what you found out doing doing all your research and all the analytics that you threw in to this post yeah. here? Yeah, sure. So basically, um, as maybe you guys will have seen by the time you're hearing me talk about this, what what I did was I wanted to come at the like pitching prospect um, like issue or problem from a different angle, and rather than looking at what's the average value of a draft pick or how often do prospect pitchers make it and how much value they provide, it was instead looking at here's the set of pitchers that we know are good. Mm-hmm. Where did they come from? Like, you know, what like what round were they drafted in? How did teams acquire them? You know, what did Baseball America say about them before they made it to the show? Mm-hmm. And basically, you know, you may have already seen the charts at this point, but there weren't, like, I think the big findings were that, you know, m- most of the good pitchers these days were first-round picks. Most of them were on the top the top 100 from Baseball America. 80% of them were top 10 team prospects by Baseball America. So in that sense, you know, the whole array of pitchers that are good and you can rely to get you some wins and anchor your pitching staff, I'm not talking about just the Clayton Kershaws and the Chris Sales. I'm talking about anyone that's basically, you know, better than average to about average. Mm-hmm. Most of those guys, first round picks. So you like it's important to hit on your first round picks because that's where good pitchers come from. It's, you know, stuff like that. Like mm-hmm. most of these guys, they're about age 25 to 31, really concentrated around age 27. So again, you know, you want to you want to get guys that are going to be controlled there because a lot of pitchers, especially if they de- debut late, by the time that they hit free agency, they're kind of past that and that just you know, that's not the landscape of where successful pitchers are. Mm-hmm. They're kind of past their prime and their effectiveness at this point. So, you know, just to, to the extent that that really dovetails to the draft thing, it's really, you know, if we're going pitcher, like, please, please, please hit on your pitcher. <laughs> yeah, so I was going to ask you, do your findings suggest that it that, that makes it um, a good strategy to go after pitchers in the early rounds? I know you touched on this a little bit in the piece, but yeah. do you think there's any evidence that suggests, yes, you should be going with those high, for those high ceiling arms and hoping you hit rather than a bat? I don't know. You know, I, I think the, the real way to answer that would be to do the same thing that I did for hitters yeah. and kind of see, you know, what where, like, the array of hitters pops out. So I don't know the definitive answer to that. It does seem like you... It does seem like what... Because so many pitchers that are big contributors and put up a lot of productivity um, in rotations have been traded... Like, because I think like forty percent, if not more, of all pitchers that are average or better were traded at some point before they started putting up those productive seasons. Mm-hmm. That does that does suggest that teams are kind of like they're mo- they're moving pieces around to get these pitchers because they need those five rotation spots yeah. to be filled. So you know, I, I don't know if I don't know what the differential value is of taking a pitcher versus. A position player like with a high pick in the draft is but i do know that the way that the market for pitching seems to be working is that teams are definitely like making trades as the braves have done for multiple first round pitchers you know they get 
like if they really need pitching in their system, they'll use their pick on a pitcher and like their comp pick on a pitcher or competitive balance or whatever. And then they'll trade stuff for more pitching prospects in that like first round bucket. So it seems like, you know, so I don't know. We're going to find out whether or not that strategy works because that's what the Braves have done. But I really hope it works because otherwise it's going to be really sad. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think um, if you guys haven't read this piece that Ivan has, look out for it if it's not on the site yet. Um, I'm sure it will be around when you guys are listening to this podcast. But looking forward to seeing uh, some additional stuff from you, Ivan, in that regard. I know you talked about doing some other uh, some other pieces that kind of relate to that. But real quick, I think we can jump into some questions from Twitter. We've got a lot of people asking about the prospects, about the draft. So um, I think we can dive into some of those really quick. Our good friend Tim Bostic, who is, uh, I think he's asked several questions that have, that have been featured on the Talking Chop podcast so, so far. Um, he asks, I'd like to know what y'all think about the draft. Um, both, I'm assuming he means the, um, the international free agent acquisitions. I think that's what he's talking about when he says both drafts, even though it's not really a draft. Um, we've talked about it a little, but... He also asked, who do you think the Braves will get, and what is the scouting report? So, Eric, I'm going to point this one to you, considering that you're a draft guy. If you had to guess right now, who would you say the Braves, the, the Braves get, and a brief scouting report, I guess, on if you have like a most likely guy. Obviously, this is kind of a silly thing to do at this point, because we see how drafts play out. You can never really tell with any kind of certainty, but if you have a, a gut instinct, who the Braves are going to be taking... I think it will be one of Kyle Lewis or Jason Groom. All right. Um, Jason Groom, a big, tall, strong lefty, uh, has a fastball that lives kind of in the mid-90s, can get it up to 97, maybe 98 if he's really you know, really pushing it. Um, good curveball, good change-up. Uh, still going to be pretty young for his age, uh, given the drafts, what draft he's in. Mm-hmm. Um, has upside. Uh, there are some um, maturity issues we talked about a little, a little bit. Uh, scouts, and I'm not. The, it's a little vague as to what those issues are, but at the same time, generally speaking, those issues don't get very specific until maybe after the draft, where people start to leaking. Oh well, they took this guy despite the fact that they knew this happened or that happened or whatever. Um, now, Kyle Lewis, on the other hand, is a college outfielder from Mercer. Um, he's really kind of come onto the scene since he was in the Cape Cod League where everyone kind of thought his power numbers might not have been real because he was playing, you know, at Mercer and we're not playing against exactly the best competition in the world. Uh, but in the Cape Cod League, he actually put up really good power numbers too against really good competition, which got people's attention for this year. Uh, we're talking about a guy who uh, his ceiling is probably a 30 home run guy uh, who should hit for decent average. Uh, there's some swing and miss. His, his swing's a little, a little noisy and a little busy. Uh, so he'll, you know, he won't, he won't catch up with everything, and you know, if his timing's not right, he'll have some stretches where he's not great. But he will also draw a lot of walks. He's drawn, I think he's drawn sixty-one in fifty games this year, or something like that, something obscene. He's just he, all the guy does is walk, and he's still hit seventeen, eighteen home runs this year, mm-hmm. despite the fact that no one in his league is pitching to him. So, uh, really good. Uh, he's gonna be a pretty good outfielder defensively. Uh, not, not, we're not looking at Jason Hayward or anything like that. Uh, even though that name's been thrown around, I guess just because he's, you know, an outfielder from Georgia, but, um, you know, he's going to, he'll be able to hit for some power, should hit for a decent average. Uh, he'll strike out more than some people will like, hmm. uh, but he should walk a bunch. Okay. Very cool. And, uh, really quickly, I don't know how much, how in depth you go to the, uh, international free agents, but obviously we've heard that the Braves are playing on spending way over their pool this season and 2016 is the year to do it uh do you have any knowledge 
or any uh, comments on what the Braves are going to be doing at the July second deadline for international signing international players? Uh, yeah, uh, I think the, of the top thirty uh, international free agents that the that um, pipelines put out, uh, the Braves are the favorite to sign six or seven of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the biggest one being number one, Kevin Maton. Uh, he'll probably be a third baseman when he eventually makes his way here. Uh, people have talked about him being the best international prospect from, you know, since uh, Miguel Sano, who was a really highly touted prospect when he signed, to even being more high, being the best prospect to come out of, uh, since Miggy, which would be, you know, obviously That's very obviously good. That's obviously a very high bar. Yeah. Generally speaking, international scouts don't throw Miggy's name around lightly. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's certainly encouraging. Yeah, and um, but other than that, there's a catcher, uh, Abraham Gutierrez, a uh, few out, uh, out, outfield prospects, uh, a few infield prospects. Notably, uh, the they're not really doesn't seem to be they're really be targeting targeting the high level pitchers at all. Mm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if they kind of focus on hitters and position players for the uh, the international guys, and then maybe focus on pitching for the uh, the draft. Because I, I know just reading Ivan's. Um, piece it seemed like the international pitchers were a little more risky or at least they didn't have those high ceilings is that true Ivan of what you found? yeah I'm not so I, don't, I, I might be jumping to conclusions no here, I think but. you're totally right at least like and I think we see this even in the brave system to some extent where you know they're targeting domestic pitchers and you know some of the exciting low-level in um Hitting prospects are international players, but the pitching has really been kind of domestic focused. Like, you know, even Tukey, who I think is from Haiti, it was still drafted. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he was. He, yeah, I think he spent most of his life in Florida. So. Yeah, so I think that that's right. And I think I just when I ran some quick statistics on it, like um, international free agent pitcher signings, which is actually weighted by the guys that come over from Korea and Japan. Yeah. They're, they're not particularly productive as far as starting pitching goes. So, you know, I don't like when I glance at, you know, who these top, uh, international prospects are, they're all bats, or at least I feel like most of them are bats. And that's kind of in line with the fact that it seems like, you know, teams are looking for, toolsy teenagers that you know have quick hands can run fast and so on not not so much stuff that translates that well to pitching all right that's very interesting i wonder if it's something to do with how uh players are how the competition that players have and the coaching that they have in these different areas compared to the uh the systems we have in the united states that'd be interesting obviously i don't have the uh, capabilities to figure out this stuff like smarter people like you, Ivan. But um, it'll be interesting to see what the Braves do in both the uh, the amateur draft and the international signings. Uh, I think we can jump into a few more questions here. I'm not sure what we're doing on time. I think we're pretty good. Um, let's see. Dubs 8 asks, How long until Dansby, Albies, and Dustin Peterson are up and contributing? Obviously, Dansby Swanson and Ozhano Oz- Albies are two guys that we've talked about a ton on this podcast. Dustin Peterson, not so much. But, um, Eric, you want to just take this? When, when are we going to see some of these guys? And I guess you want to talk about Dustin Peterson a little more since he's had a great year but really has been overshadowed by the two shortstops. Yeah, um, Dansby and Albies, just really quick, the, I would expect them to be like kind of a September call-up type thing. Um, I think that they're both doing – I mean, Dansby's been on fire of late and Albies has really started to heat up again now that he's in AAA after a little bit of a lull. Um, I don't – a lot of people just because – Think to just assume that because Ibar has been so bad that one of these guys will get a shot. 
Um, I think that the Braves really want to make a decision as to who the best fielding shortstop is mm-hmm. before they kind of make a decision as to who gets called up. Uh, and I honestly don't know how long that decision is going to take because they're both actually very adept shortstops short uh, with their pluses and minuses. I think Albies maybe has a little more range. Uh, I think maybe Dansby has a little bit more of an accurate arm. Um, and they both make their, have made their shares of errors this year. I think they're both pressing a bit, trying to prove that they're the best shortstop. Um, Dustin Peterson is a left fielder converted from being a third baseman. Uh, he was not a very good third baseman at all. Um, <laughs> he uh, has a bat and has some power potential, but we're talking like maybe 15 to 20 home runs. Um, and really has improved as a left fielder. He was pretty rough out there last year, but this year he's been you know he's been st- he's been stealing home runs and he's he's been doing really well out there. Uh, really kind of taken to the position and worked hard to be good at it. Uh, he is notoriously streaky with the bat. Like sometimes, like for a week, it just looks like he's playing against little leaguers and just is like clocking the ball and looks like the best hitter in the system. And then he'll go stretches of like ten games where he just like can't hit the ball at all. Um, last year, he was one of the prospects that was inter- uh, injured in that bus crash with all the Carolina Mudcats players. Mm. Um, and there's actually still at least one player for sure that still hasn't returned from the injuries that he got in that. Um, and it, so it was kind of understandable that he was going to have some drop off in the, the second half last year. But he also had a drop-off in the second half the year before hmm. um, from his production. So the first thing, before we can even talk about when he's going to be up, is when that he can finish a season strong. Because I mean, we're talking about very significant drop-offs in average and production period uh, for both years. And if he can finish a year and be like that 270-280 hitter, hitting for some power, being productive, driving in runs, then maybe we can talk about a call-up in 2017 sometime. But until he can do that, uh, he's he's kind of he's still a very fringy you know he's a top twenty five guy but kind of at the bottom where I'm not sure if he's going to make it yet uh, but he very well could. All right, and then we've got another question about a, a player that I can I know I think you're uh, pretty high on uh, maybe it was Garrett but Caleb Cabo asked what happened to Connor Line Connor Lean how do you pronounce his name uh, Connor Lean Connor Lean I know he was uh, put on the seven day disabled list on April 9th with a left hand injury and just looking at his baseball reference profile he's only played and he only has two plate appearances this season so do you yep. have any updates on what what he's been up to this year and what's the extent of his injury if you have knowledge of that uh yeah he had hand surgery uh he broke a bone in his hand he broke a bone in his left hand uh that required to be surgically repaired mm-hmm. uh, i believe it was on a swing of all things uh just swung wrong or turned his wrist over wrong and it broke a broke uh, one of the bones in his hand uh he's having surgery i my understanding is that he should be back sometime in june and I know what what was the reason that you guys were so excited about this kid? Uh, because he's an all world defensive center fielder. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, he has trouble hitting the ball at times. <laughs> um, and and he was really like his bat was really coming around last year, but it was very BABIP driven. Yeah. So we wanted to kind of see how he was doing. And then he went to the Arizona Fall League and was probably one of the worst players there. Twenty so, WRC plus twenty. Yeah, yeah, he was it was remarkably bad in the AFL. <laughs> Um, so now it's kind of hard to judge him on anything he's done this year because he, he was hurt. Mm. Uh, hopefully he takes, he, once he comes back from the injury, uh, you know, he won't, he won't be the guy he was last year where he was like hitting close to 300, stealing a bunch of bases and hitting for some power. But if he could have a, if he could have a, be productive with the bat, uh, his, I mean, he had a ton of outfield assists last year and he can really play in the outfield. All right. And continuing on this beat of, uh, prospect questions, RDP and RVA asks, can you talk about where you guys expect prospects like Posey, Soroka, Freed, and others 
to start in the system in 2017? If you want to just take a general route to this question, that'd be fine too. Uh, all will be one level up uh, with the possible exception of Freed. Uh, he may, it depends, Freed's kind of a different case because he is, kind of, is basically repeating a level after, you know, having Tommy John surgery. Mm. Uh, it's possible he'll go up to high A if he can get his, you know, shake the rust off and get his control under. He can beat up the high A before the end of the year, in which case he might start in Mississippi. Uh, but in which case, that means Sirocco starts at high A, Popesy starts in double A. Okay. Um, and no, I, don't, I don't see anyone, there's no college guys that are like considered our really high end prospects that would like move particularly quickly. I all expect him to be a, around one level up. All right, and I'm just going to throw Colby Allard's name into that group as well because he seems like a similar mold to these guys. Where do you expect him to be next season? Uh, I would expect him to be at high A, but you, mean, you, know, you can't take anything for granted. He could come back and have real troubles in Rome, uh, kind of like Tukey's had. Um, so you know, it's possible he, if he misses enough time and struggles, then he might have to repeat. All right. Uh, I, I would imagine high A. Appreciate the insight for all these prospects, Eric. Um, you guys can always ask Eric questions on Twitter as well if you have any specific ones that you want to hit him up hit him up with. Uh, he's at Leprechaun. We can get the spelling of that later in the podcast. But I think we can move on to the Major League team because there's actually some stuff to talk about with the Major League team. The offense has been better recently. They just won a series against uh, the Phillies this weekend, although they didn't manage to get the sweep uh, this afternoon, dropping 5-0. But over the last seven days... Um, they're, they've actually hit pretty well. They, their team WRC Plus is 102, which is something that you would not expect of this team. They're hitting 254, 322, 434 over the past seven days. Uh, is this something we can expect moving forward, Ivan, or is this kind of just a lucky little stretch for the team that we should uh, just enjoy while it lasts? Yeah, I, I don't think that they're going to hit like a league average team offensively. Mm-hmm. They might if they stop playing guys like Jeff Frank who are against righties, but... Uh, you know, I, I feel like that's not too likely. Um, for for May as a whole, um, excluding pitchers, that it's an 80 WRC+. Plus. So the pitchers so, are carrying the load offensively, is that what you're telling me? <laughs> it's <laughs> that and the, the, the homer barrage from uh, that happened in Pittsburgh. And then, uh, I think, was it Friday's First game? First game against Philly, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, I, you know, I think, that, I think that's boosting it a bit. But, you know, just kind of... Looking overall at their stats, I think the thing that really jumps out at me, and we can, I, some of the other questions that folks asked might touch on this too, but I just don't, there's not that much when I look over the team stats that jumps out as me as like, oh, that's really bad and not commensurate with the level of talent they're putting out there, so it'll have to get better. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the team record overall might get a little better, but like, these are some not great offensive performers putting up some not great offensive performances. So yeah, I'm not expecting league average. Like I hope, I don't think that they weren't like, you know, 1884 generals or whatever levels of offensive futility, but yeah, I think it's pretty bad and I would not expect them to, you know, finish outside of like the top 10 or like tops or outside of the bottom 10 or bottom seven or something Mm -hmm. offensively for the month. Yeah, it's really interesting if you go to Fangraphs and pull up the Braves' uh, individual players and just put on the last seven-day split. The first, really, the first seven players you get for um, war for this team in those seven days are Chase Darno, Tyler Flowers, Gordon Beckham, Malik Smith, Reed Brignac, Jeff Rancor, and Bud Norris. And this is for hitters. So that's kind of just, just how they drew it up. Yeah, just how you drew it up. I mean, Chase Darno has. A 563 BABIP over the past seven days 
he's he's not a player that you're going to rely on for offense. And so I I think this is kind of a blip on the radar, kind of like you were, what you were saying, Ivan. So enjoy it while it lasts. Enjoy these guys doing something with the bat, but. I'm still very skeptical of what this team is able to do offensively. Does that sum it up pretty well? Yeah. Hey, I mean, Nick Marcakis hit a homer in May and not in, like, <laughs> July or whatever. So, you know, I, things are looking up. <laughs> and and Malik Smith hit two home runs in a single game. That's like finding a unicorn. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he, he still hasn't walked. But... I mean... He can, he can turn on one with the best of them, it seems like. I mean, he hit, those weren't, like cheap wall scrapers he really killed that second one mm. now, oh, he really did now no. that we're on malik's ivan i want to ask you about um yeah. what do you think of him defensively because me and brad touched on uh malik smith's defensive metrics i know um most of the defensive metrics say that he's been extremely good thus far i was skeptical of that just because of what i've heard of him being a raw route runner and just the few routes that i've seen him run this year that i don't think are that impressive uh, maybe the speed's carrying that. Maybe maybe just because he's so fast, he's able to get to balls that other guys can't. But what do you yeah. think of him as a defensive outfielder? Do you think the um, defensive metrics are accurate at this point with him, or do you think that we still need to wait for those to, to maybe give us a true indicator of his skill? Yeah. So um, on the defensive metrics front, I just want they are accurately recording what he's actually done so far. So when they're saying that, you know, he's got seven DRS and like three and a half UZR positive Mm -hmm. right now. So that's actually an accurate assessment of the runs, like the theoretical, I'm I'm doing air quotes with my hands, runs that he saved uh, by his defensive play. That's not an assessment of his talent level. That's actually saying what he's done. So that's not like, to me, that's not really up for debate because he's actually done that according to those metrics. Now, from in terms of what I've seen from him with my complete non-scout's eye, is that he's so fast that he's like it doesn't matter if he has crappy roots. It, it he could obviously be better with better roots, and there have been some things. You know, sometimes when the ball's hit in front of him, he seems to not put himself in a very good position to cut it off or make a play on it. Mm-hmm. But on balls that are that he has to go left to right or any kind of back, he is so fast that I think that's just what it is. Like you know most guys aren't that fast like i don't know if angel pagan is still playing center but angel pagan is not that fast and he's in his and he's in his peer group Mm -hmm. so you know to the extent that he's you know running faster than a bunch of these center fielders like how somewhat less efficient his route is doesn't really matter because he's still getting there and catching it and you know that's really in a lot of ways all the metrics are assessing is you know a ball is hit here when it drops it's usually worth this many runs did you catch it or not? And if so, you basically get the credit for not having those runs fall, those runs occur. Like that's that's a big oversimplification, but mm-hmm. he's gone and he's caught those balls. So you know, again, there's I think there's a lot of room for improvement, but so long as he doesn't lose a step, I think I think that he could be a plus defender, and that there doesn't have to be there don't have to be concerns that his defense just won't play and he needs to be stuck in left now to the extent that the balls have, that have been hit to him so far are idiosyncratically the types of ones that he can get very well. And as he plays more, he won't get as many of those balls. And he's going to start racking up some debits for not taking good routes on balls he has to come in on. That can totally happen. In mm-hmm. fact, that probably will happen. But I don't, but you know, I don't think the metrics aren't lying. Okay. There's, yeah. Very interesting. And uh, Eric, just to go to uh, your, more of your um, expertise. I know you've watched Malik's a lot as he came up through the minors. Did you see any sort of 
improve? Did you notice any improvement in him defensively as he moved up through the minors? And have you seen him make adjustments now that he's at the major league level, or is there still an area where he needs to to put in a lot of work? At? I guess what's your read on him? Uh, well, he as a defender. The thing he always had trouble with was reading the ball right off the bat. Um, it's kind of like that that first couple steps he would take would kind of like put him on bad lines to take bad routes. Uh, he has made a lot of improvement, and the the kid puts in a lot of work in terms of like trying to be a good fielder. And you'll kind of see it like on the plays where you kind of like are puzzled by him. Mm-hmm. Is where like he'll like come in on a ball that was never even close to being in front of him, um, things like that. But he he has such good speed just to cover that that much ground, and he's getting better. Like you know, you look at his routes and you're like, that's not great. But I mean, like when he was first coming up, and when we first got to the Brave system, I mean, like he would take like, you know, Kev, Cameron Mabin type, you know, big loopy routes. Where you just hope that he get you know gets anywhere close to the ball, let alone catching it, mm-hmm. and he's gotten a lot better. Um, I I am a little skeptical that he's going to be in like one of the best defensive center fielders in the game, which is what he's kind of ranking is right now. But you know, he, I think he could be a plus defender out there, um, and then hopefully, you know, he can figure out the bat enough to where you know he can be a very passable option in center or even left. Just, right. in case, just to chime in a little bit more, I okay. pulled up his inside edge numbers, which I think these lag a bit, and they don't dovetail really neatly with the run stuff from UZR and DRS. But basically, they just there's some there's a score that looks at every play that um, he does and determines how hard it was to make and like how how <coughs> often that play is usually made. So I think what's driving his really good metrics is that any play that is usually made he has also made Mm -hmm. so 75 balls that have been hit to him that are pretty much always caught he's caught every single one um you know he's only had four balls that are mostly caught he's caught every single one then he's only had three balls hit to him which are catchable but you know some fielders make it some fielders don't he hasn't made any of those but it's just three you know, and I think the overall distribution is that, you know, you don't see, you know, some like some tiny percent, like you don't see 5% of all the balls hit to you being pretty hard. It might be like something like 15%. So he just hasn't had that many hard balls hit to him, but he's caught all of them that okay. are, that have that have been pretty reasonable, except those three that are pretty hard to catch and he hasn't done it. So that's really what's driving it. I think as he gets more balls hit to him and, you know, kind of that evens out the difficulty of the plays, you know, that'll even out his defensive metrics a bit. And when he messes up a routine play, that's going to hurt him a bunch. And that's just usually going to happen. Like that happens to everyone because, you know, a 99% play is not a 100% play. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, like that'll, his um, defensive metrics will take a, will take a tumble just because that really hurts. Yeah, it'll be cool to see how he uh, improves defensively going forward and just how he plays. I think Malik's is one of the most fun guys to watch on this team just because those speedy guys always seem to be exciting players to watch. I don't know if you guys agree or disagree with that. I love watching him. He seems like he seems like he's having fun out there, which is, you know, from yeah. an entertainment standpoint, it's just it's, it means a lot, especially given how tough this year's been. Yeah, he's one of those guys that just seems like he's constantly enjoying himself on the baseball field, which is great to see. I like when he makes the cameramen look stupid because they assume it'll be going to either like the left fielder or the right fielder, and then he just zooms into the camera <laughs> like the screen, and you don't even know where like where he was positioned to begin with, and somehow still closes and makes the catch. Yeah, like it looks like that ball is definitely going to drop. And Ciarte does that too, but yeah. he's better at it going <laughs> in and out as well as left to right. He he's also really good at juking base yeah. runners. <laughs> 
Uh, I think the last thing we want to touch on real quick um, before we wrap this up is uh, Aaron Blair's demotion. I know he was a guy that all of us were really excited about seeing. He made uh, five starts this season and really didn't have the success that we hoped he would have, that we thought he could have. Um, His last outing maybe makes his stats look a little bit worse than they probably should be seen as. He's got a uh, 4.05 ERA if you ignore his last start uh, against Pittsburgh when he allowed nine runs in 1.1 innings. Um, He's got a 7.59 ERA if you include all those starts. Uh, But he was demoted after that after that outing, and I'm just curious, Eric, as to what you think of Aaron Blair, what happened on that start, and uh, going forward, what do we need to see him adjust to have more more success at the major league level? Um, consistently locating his fastball is going to be a big thing. He has to keep that down. He's not going to be a guy that blows you away with anything. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he was just very inconsistent in his time in Atlanta, and I think he just needs to kind of get a handle on his pitches, especially just kind of locating his fastball. That way, which sets up his other break, his other secondary pitches, and um, I I think that the move to Triple A is going to be really good for him. And I I actually have it on good authority that this last start, the one he did the other day, uh, yesterday with the rain delay, mm. uh, he's working on a slider now, and apparently it's been it was actually going quite well. So I so I think that uh, sending him down um, keeps him shielded from really taking too many lumps at the major league level. While also getting to work on some things, um, and you know, adding another pitcher like a, another pitch like a slider or something like that, uh, like certainly can't hurt, um, as long, especially if it's a good pitch. And I'm also curious as what you think of his strikeout to walk numbers. He only had eight strikeouts in a 21 innings. Obviously, that's not ideal. Should we expect him to have low strikeout numbers moving forward? Was this kind of the uh, the type of pitcher that he was at the minors? Uh, he, obvi- he, he he's kind of like a. Six to like a six to seven, maybe around a seven mm-hmm. per 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 nine innings guy. Uh, so not not nearly as bad as he has he was in the majors. Um, and I think that was a product of not locating his fastball, which meant that people could kind of sit on his 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 more of his out pitches. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know part of the problem too is I mean he was he dished out you know twelve walks in twenty one innings too. So you know he wasn't really finding the strike zone with the stuff that they weren't swinging at. All right, I think that about wraps it up for us on this episode of the podcast. We did go a little bit longer, but something happened with the audio at the end of this. Uh, we had one more question from Shaw SP on Twitter. Uh, he asked, how many games can we expect to lose this season? We did talk about this on the podcast, but for whatever reason, the audio was not. Uh, it did not survive. So I'll go ahead and answer that one briefly for uh, Eric and Ivan, who told me. Uh, Eric said he believed the Braves would lose 98 games this season. Uh, Ivan said he believed it to be around 102 to 106, somewhere in that range, given the projection systems he's looked at. I think it'll be around 102, 103. Um, But as always, thank you guys for listening to the podcast. Be on the lookout for Ivan's uh, starting pitcher story uh, on the site. I believe it's going to go up Monday at some point, so check that out if you guys are interested. Um, As always, you can follow Eric on Twitter at Leprechaun. You can follow myself at Carlos A. Colazzo and follow the website at Talking Chop. Um, But until next time, guys, take care and thanks for listening.